Welcome to the 196th episode of the 4th and 24 podcast with Patrick Winograd. I'm your host, Randy Winograd. In this edition of the podcast, our topics are a brief overview of Patrick's weekend predictions, our weekly look at the NBA, and a preview of the NCAA tournament. Let's jump right in with a look back at Patrick's weekend predictions, which are posted every Thursday on our website, 4thand24.com. Start in the NBA, where Patrick went 0-4 with his weekend predictions. And then in NCAA basketball, Patrick went 2-2, which means he went a combined 2-6 this past weekend. That brings Patrick to a 681 and 437 overall record, a 60.9% winning percentage. Patrick, your thoughts on your weekend predictions? Well, I've been doing well for a few weeks in a row now, so I don't really care, honestly, about the bad week. Um, I will say... Definitely the least NBA I've watched in any week, in a ve- probably at least over the course of the season. I won't say in a very long time, because um, I've done a better job of keeping up with the NBA this season um, in- intentionally. Um, but look, as we'll talk about later, uh, I had a very good bracket prediction, and that was intentional. I really didn't care about these predictions. That was the prediction I was trying to nail down. It's a one-week thing that I pay that much attention um, I missed some key injuries. I, I, I picked the Mavericks to beat the Grizzlies, thinking about the John Morant situation, and failed to check to realize that both Kyrie Irving and Luka Doncic had injuries that they were dealing with, and both of them ended up not playing, so not too surprising that the Mavericks ended up losing that game. Um, the Kings, I'm just reverse jinxing them, and I will continue to pick them every single week, or pick a game with them in it every single week, and pick against them every week so that I can keep being wrong, and they can keep winning, and I will do that in every playoff game until they end eventually win the NBA Finals, and I will pick them to lose the NBA Finals in four games, and then I'll be very happy when they win um, because it's been working. This is three weeks in a row that I picked against them, and they've won, so I'll keep doing it because it makes me happy. I don't really care. Um, <laughs> then, uh, and, I'll, and I'm being transparent about it because if I was not saying that, I think that's actually a problem if you have a bias like that and you don't share it, but I'm sharing it very outwardly on purpose. Uh, then you have the Nets who beat the Nuggets 122-120. to 120. No explanation for this one. I have no excuses. This was just the Nuggets not playing too well um, and losing to a team that they shouldn't be losing to. It's as simple as that. I mean, this is a Nuggets-centric problem, not a me-picking-games problem. And then the final one, the Clippers beating the Knicks 106-95. to probably, no- probably should have done some better research and realized that the Clippers had gotten it together after I had said that they needed to get it together because they had. Um, that's mostly an error on me not doing that much research because of all the stuff that was going on this week. Um, so I, that, that's not too surprising that I got that one wrong, but I probably would have gone maybe one and three or two and two in a normal week. And then in college basketball, anything can happen in March. Um, I don't think anybody saw Penn state going all the way to the big 10 tournament final and coming what within a point at some point with three ish seconds left. I think was their smallest margin in that game at, at a late point, um, to, of beating Purdue and winning the big 10 championship. So, yeah, I predicted them to lose in the first game, and then obviously they ended up making a title run, but that's just that's just what March is. I mean, this is what happens all the time. Uh, so not really surprised about that one. Uh, number 11, UConn beat Providence. Providence is slumped at the end of the season. Normally I would pick them as an 11 seed that could pull off an upset over a 6, but considering their matchup, I mean, they might be the best 11 seed, but considering their matchup with Kentucky, that's not going to happen. We'll talk more about that later. Uh, but... UConn has been on fire recently. Um, I'm not going to say too much about that because I have more things to say about that later. Uh, but look, UConn was playing well up until this point. Up until this point, Providence was not playing well up until this point. Too easy to predict that one. But I had to pick games that are on Thursday, and some of the big—I mean, some of the best teams didn't even play until Friday. 
uh, in the SEC and in the Big Ten, they didn't. Um, and then I picked number 22 TCU to lose to number 12 Kansas State because Eddie Lampkin uh, actually eventually ended up entering a transfer portal. Before that, they just said he had some, I, I believe, I, I don't want to mischaracterize it, but they, they said there were some off-the-field things going on, and it seemed like it was something having to do with potentially an argument or something like that with the teammate. Um, and then they said that he wasn't going to be with the team in the Big 12 tournament, and they would figure out the next steps from there. And the next steps was that he entered the transfer portal. So uh, that is the end of that story there. But I thought the TCU down him would not be able to come out and get the win over Kansas State. But it just goes to show you the impact of Mike Miles that this team is ranked 22nd, yet beat a number 12-ranked Kansas State team. With getting Mike Miles back, even just without having Lampkin, just having it, Mike Miles makes that big of a difference for this team. Uh, and then finally... Number 21, Duke beat Pitt 96-69. to This was the game that, uh, if you didn't believe that Duke had fully turned around their season, you watched this game where they were playing a team that had all the, not necessarily all the momentum in the world, but all the reason in the world to need to go out and win a game. We saw it. We saw it ourselves. Pitt was three teams away from missing the NCAA tournament. Frankly, you look at their resume, you can make the argument that they shouldn't have been in the tournament even after they actually made the tournament. So for Duke to come out against a team this hungry and just absolutely, I mean, they destroyed Pitt. It's as simple as that. For them to do that against a team with that much motivation, it just goes to show you how much Duke has turned everything around. They cruised through the ACC tournament, and the ACC was not good this year. I mean, that that's a fact. The ACC was not a good conference at all. Um, you're looking for a bracket tip on a conference that you should be fine with letting them lose. That would be the conference. Um, but at the same time, Duke... They they ran through this through the end of the ACC season as if they were the number one team in the country. Honestly, I don't think they are the number one team in the country, but that is what I think Kansas would do if they played in the ACC. That's what I think Houston would do if they played in the ACC. This is the type of results I would expect from those teams. And Duke being able to put that up at the end of the season is just insane. Okay, well that wraps up our look back at Patrick's prediction predictions for this past weekend. Uh, his predictions for next weekend will be posted on our website as always on Thursday. Let's now move to our recap of the NBA, and as always, start with Patrick's three most impressive teams of the past week. I will start with the Philadelphia 76ers, who went 4-0. They beat Washington, Portland, Minnesota, and Indiana. They currently sit in the third seed in the East, just three games back of Milwaukee for the number one seed, and one and a half games back of the Celtics for the two seed. Uh, The 76ers have officially, in my opinion, distanced themselves from the rest of the East, and have put themselves into that same category as the true contenders with Boston and Milwaukee behind the tremendously strong play of Joel Embiid. More on that later. Uh, The second team is the Sacramento Kings. You know, the Sixers have been a recent contender uh, a lot. They have not made the NBA Finals recently, but they have been in that mix pretty much every year for five or six years, to be honest. Uh, But the Kings have not had that type of success. We all know that. Uh, I mean, their biggest success, honestly, was being a team that actually made it to the bubble and wasn't one of the teams that was so far out of contention that they couldn't even make it there. But they ended up actually uh, going regressing in the standings during the bubble. Um, and overall, that was their best season in a while, going 31-41, and 41, which is what they did both seasons uh, under Luke Walton. But all of a sudden, things have changed under Mike Brown. They beat Phoenix, New York, and New Orleans this week. Three playoff teams who are all fighting for seeding, in the Knicks' case, fighting to not be in the play-in bracket, and in New Orleans' case, also trying not to be in the play-in bracket. I mean, the Kings just won't stop winning. That's just, it is what it is. I have successfully reverse-jinxed them three weeks in a row. 
on my weekend predictions, and I am elated that this team is just two wins away from getting the first winning season since 2005-2006 for the Kings. Uh, they are already the first time, the first team, sorry, to reach 40 wins in a season since that same team. But now I can confidently say that it would require the largest end-of-the-season collapse in NBA history for this team to miss the playoffs. It's almost impossible for them to miss the playoffs. They are 40-26. and 26. To end under 500, they would need to go 0-16 for the rest of the season. There's no way that happens. To end one game above 500, they would need to go 2-14. There is no way this team can miss the playoffs, especially when you have the consideration that the play-in bracket is actually considered part of the playoffs. That is at least the floor for this team is somehow in the biggest reverse miracle of all time being the seven seed because the Lakers and the Clippers just won't stop winning or something like that at the end of the year. And the Grizzlies somehow start to turn things around because they're currently tied with the Kings as well. Uh, but wins like the, the one they got in Phoenix to actually improve their seeding and get into the number two seed in the West just go to show you that this team is different than the teams in the past. And I just don't think there's any way they don't end the playoff drop for, I mean, all the reasons that I just stated. It's nearly impossible for them to not have a, lo- a winning record. And most of the teams right now that are in contention do have a losing record uh, that are still fighting for those playoff spots, the Lakers included in that mix, a bunch of other teams as well, but just figured I'd mention them. Uh, then you have the Brooklyn Nets, 3-1 and one this week. Uh, they beat Denver, Minnesota, and Houston. This team is a far different team than the team that was supposed to play the Lakers for the NBA Finals and the greatest finals of all time two years ago uh, that obviously never even came close to materializing. Uh, But somehow, they've actually started to figure things out with this new roster. Other than the loss to Milwaukee this week, um, they had a really solid week. I don't think they're capable of making it out of the East, but I do think they could upset a team in the first round, and I wouldn't really be that surprised. Um, I'm not saying they're going to do that, and I think it's very, very matchup-dependent. But I am saying it wouldn't it wouldn't be out of the realm of possibility. I don't think they could beat one of the big three teams. But I think if they find themselves in the 4-5 matchup, despite the fact that Cleveland did beat them last year to make the playoffs, I could see them beating Cleveland in a seven-game series. I just don't... I wouldn't be the one to predict that, but I wouldn't be sitting there at the end of that series if that were to happen and and sit there and be astonished. I really don't think it would be that crazy. Um, but they also aren't automatically falling into the play play-in bracket like I had initially thought they would after the trade deadline, um, as they are still currently three and a half games ahead of the Heat, who occupy the seventh seed as things stand hanging into today, uh, and they are tied with the Knicks for the fifth slash sixth seed. So they're actually in pretty good positioning right now. Hard to believe this is the same team you and I witnessed not score forty points and a half at Chicago two weeks ago. Yeah, yeah, pretty big turnaround. All right. Let's go to the most disappointing teams in the past week in the NBA. Well, they only played two games, but the Timberwolves went 0-2. They lost to Brooklyn and Philly. While the two losses are to two teams on my most impressive list, they have to find a win at some point. Uh, they cannot just continue to lose to everyone in the path in their path if they want to be able to claim a playoff spot. They're in that log jam in the West of, I mean, a billion teams that are fighting for spots like 4-8 through eight at this point. It used to be 3-8, through eight, but Sacramento and Phoenix have actually started to Put a little bit of distance between the between that spot and Memphis. Actually, actually, Phoenix is still kind of part of the big mess. Actually, they're they're the fourth team right now. Uh, but then you have the Denver Nuggets. They are way ahead of everybody else. Uh, despite a one and three week, they're still six wins ahead of Sacramento and ahead of the uh, Grizzlies, who are tied with Sacramento at forty wins. Uh, the Nuggets have forty six. 
They lost to Chicago, San Antonio, and Brooklyn, and they only beat Toronto. They have not played well recently and are trending down at the time of the year that you need to be playing your best, while a lot of other teams in the West that arguably were more talented than the start the talented than they were to start the year uh, are playing better. And Coach Malone said it himself that they need to step it up and they better do it soon because there are there are 16 games left in the season, it's four weeks away from being the playoffs, which is pretty crazy to say, but it's about four or five weeks away at this point. So uh, it, it's time for the Nuggets to start playing like the team that they're supposed to be, uh, especially because. They're going to have to stop taking nights off in terms of rest and all that stuff. They have been managing a lot of injuries because, as we know, Michael Porter Jr. and Jamal Murray had season-ending injuries last season. But at the same time, those guys are going to have to play every night in the playoffs. So they got to start to get used to that kind of rhythm, and they need to play well while being in that rhythm. Uh, and then, finally, you have the Toronto Raptors. They went 0-3. They lost to both LA teams and Denver this week. Uh, they lost this week in some heartbreaking games, or maybe if you're Fred Van Vliet, some games that fuel your adrenaline and cause you to uh, not care about the $30,000 fine and go off on an official, which, to be quite honest with you, I fully support the rant. Uh, I am not on the best of terms with officials. I'm not saying that I've had a, a fight or anything like that with any officials, but uh, if you've ever watched a game with me, you know that I am highly critical of officials all the time. Uh, I'm trying to work on that as well, but... That is definitely a thing, and uh, Fred Van Vliet, he seems like he'd be the type of guy to have the exact same reaction while watching a game that I would, and uh, the only difference is he's an NBA player and he's not allowed to say stuff like that, um, and he said a lot. Uh, go watch it for yourself. I'm not saying anything that I can't, I actually can't repeat anything that he said for various reasons, um, but yeah, he doesn't really like Ben Taylor, uh, if that's if that's something that you're interested in, and I'll just leave it at that and you can figure it out yourself. Uh, but look, regardless how much they deserve to lose each individual game, they are only one game ahead of Washington for the final play-in spot, and the Bulls are a half game off of both in between those two, uh, currently sitting at the 10 spot, while Washington is in 11th and the Raptors are 9th. So they, even more so than the Nuggets, need to start playing better before the season ends if they're going to make the playoffs, because at some point that looked automatic, and last year they played well enough to be a pretty easy playoff team, but this year they're going to struggle to make the play-in bracket and they need to turn things around pretty rapidly if they want to actually be able to do that. Okay, let's move to the player of the week in the NBA. It will be Joel Embiid. I said it a long time ago uh, while we were talking about the Sixers, maybe about eight and a half minutes ago, um, that they were playing well because of him. Um, and he's kind of, I don't really think he's making the NBA conversation, or the MVP conversation, excuse me, a conversation, but he's making it at least a little bit closer than it was before, uh, averaging 38.5 points, 6.8 rebounds, 3.8 assists, 2.8 blocks, and 1.5 steals per game this week as he led the Sixers to that 4-0 week. Uh, and the Sixers, playing well as a team, Joel Embiid playing well as an individual. It's a good formula heading into the playoffs when you also have James Harden leading the league in assists. All right, let's move off the NBA and move to college basketball, where conference championship tournaments have concluded, and the 68-team field is set for the NCAA tournament, so it's time for our annual March Madness preview. Uh, first off, Patrick has been posting his predicted NCAA tournament bracket all season. As you mentioned with your weekend predictions, you were kind of maybe distracted by uh, doing your final and most important bracket prediction. Patrick, how did your final predicted bracket compare to the actual bracket, and how do you feel about your bracket predictions? Well, I will start by saying I tied for 45th on the bracket matrix in my first year, um, which is something that I'm pretty proud of. Uh, that that count is technically still unofficial, but I think 
I don't think there's really any errors that are in that. I, I trust um, the the man who runs the bracket project to do it properly. Um, I felt good about my predictions this year, and when I was scoring it, I realized I was even closer uh, to doing even better. It, to note kind of um, a a notable switch and b just how fine the margins are between people in this in in the bracket matrix. I switched San Diego State and put them to the four line at the beginning of Sunday uh, because their resume is much better than Virginia's, um, and I replaced Virginia. And if I had kept that the way it was before, it would have added four points to my score, and instead of being 45th, I would have been tied for 20th. So if you want to know how thin the margins are, that's a good example of it. Um, There's just really a fine margin between scores within the bracket matrix, and people who have performed consistently above average deserve a lot of credit for always getting those tough decisions correct. Uh, even Mike DeCourcy, for example, who is Fox Sports' bracketologist, was ninth last year overall, and this year was somewhere in the 100s, the low 100s, I believe. Um, so it really can turn on a really year over year. The committee has at times been pretty unpredictable, um, but I really do think they were pretty predictable this year, honestly. Maybe that's just the way that the year turned out. Maybe, maybe it helps to have something like the Big 12 where there's just a massive conference of every single team beats up on each other and they're all top teams. And to also have a conference like the Big 10 where you have two clear teams above the rest and then everybody else kind of in a log jam and it's just who got the big wins between those teams. And, you know, you really look at it in Northwestern and Michigan State, for example, the seven seeds that are in the Big 10, the reason why they're ahead of teams like Iowa, teams like Illinois, those Penn State, is because they had the cleaner resumes. Michigan State played an incredibly tough out-of-conference strength of schedule, uh, or schedule. Northwestern did not really do that, but they ran through their non-conference schedule. And Northwestern went 3-0 and against those two teams at the top of the Big Ten, which is the most important thing you can do. They also claimed a lot of road wins over the course of the season, and even some of their quad two losses are to really, really good teams at home that would be quad one games that they were on the road. And they split a lot of those series throughout the season by winning the game on the road and losing the game at home, which is really odd. But Northwestern's ability to win on the road is what puts them above a team like Iowa, who really had that one signature win on the road against Indiana, but struggled to put together the resume outside of that and even had a final loss to Nebraska at home that kind of pulled down the resume. And in the end, you also have a team like Rutgers who missed the tournament as a result of the fact that they had three or four quad three losses, actually, uh, by the end of the season. That's what pulled their resume down. But going back to kind of the heart of how I did, um, I think I can still do even better next year, to be honest, because things like this Virginia and San Diego State switch, I need to learn. Sometimes the eye test that I have is different than what the committee has. I personally am extremely low on Virginia, and I can't wait for San Diego State to absolutely destroy Virginia when they play each other in the round of 32, so that I can have my point proven that they're a better team uh, if Virginia makes it past Furman in the first place, or if Charleston beats San Diego State. That will also mess up that matchup because both of those things could very easily happen. Um, but something worth noting is that my payment score this year was 368, which would have been tied for ninth on last year's bracket matrix. Um, and I point this out to say that the range of accurate bracketologists is growing every year. And in general, my personal belief is that the committee has become more predictable now that we've used the net for a few years. People know the distinction between a quad one A victory and just a regular quad one victory. And they kind of know how the committee is going to value both of those things. We, we know how much they're going to use the eye test as opposed to just the net rankings. Um, certain things like how Pitt and Arizona State were even in the conversation with teams that were in the 40s and the 30s in the net when they were in the low 60s, below teams like Michigan, below Oklahoma, Oklahoma. 
knowing knowing the committee um, and how they've been over the past few years really helps to shape those decisions and even think for a second that either of those teams can make the tournament. Um, I'll, I'll talk about what I did with that later. But I think the committee has actually become a little bit more predictable as the system has gone on. I think that we know that aside of net rankings, they do value getting quad one wins. I think Northwestern's a perfect example of that. 41st in the net, 41st in Ken Palm, pretty much 40th in pretty much every metric. Um, but a 7-4 and four record in quad one, one of the top teams in the country in terms of accumulating quad one wins, and didn't have too many losses in that quad either. They actually very much so capitalized on all their opportunities. And as a result, the committee rewarded them for putting them in a better position than what the metrics had them because they saw that the wins were there. They beat Purdue. They beat Indiana twice. They deserve to be placed higher than the computers placed them just because of the fact that they were able to do that. And, you know, they play a bunch of close games. It is what it is. That's why they're only a seven seed. If they were able to blow out a few more teams, they'd be up there near where Indiana is. Um, but, and that's why the computers aren't very high on them. But at the same time, um, speaking of numbers, from 2017 to 2022, the average score improved over year over year from 336 about to 338 about to 342 to 346.4 to 347. This year, just by eyeballing it, I'm not doing the math myself, but 347, which was last year's average, is good enough to be tied for 189th out of the 229 bracketologists. So it's very likely that the average dramatically improved this year, uh, which just goes to show you that people are getting better at it and the committee is getting a little bit more predictable. Okay, well, speaking of the committee uh, and the bracket, overall thoughts on the committee seeds and who's in and who isn't? Another thing about being about the committee being more predictable, especially if you do well on your bracket like I did, uh, is that I really don't have any major gripes with the seeding overall. I will say the seeding is one thing I didn't have major gripes with. I do have problems with who was in the tournament, and I'll get to that in a second. Um, but I expected at least one of Iowa State and TCU to get the nod for a five over either Miami or St. Mary's, and that was something that I definitely expected because they respected the Big 12 heavily in their first round when they were doing the initial top 16 uh, had a few of those teams pretty pretty high up in comparison to where others had them. Uh, off the top of my head, I believe Baylor was still considered a, a high up there three seed at the time, and they already had them as a middle-of-the-pack two seed ahead of Arizona, which seemed kind of crazy back then, but, you know, it ended up working out. It ended up all working itself out anyway. Um, but knowing things like that, I thought they were going to rate the Big 12 higher than they did. I, I'm definitely surprised that at least one of those teams was in the six. And I also do think that Texas A&M being a seven seed, that one is just a miss. I'm I'm just gonna say that flat out. That that's just a miss. I think they needed to be higher than that. Um, a lot of people had them all the way in the five seed range. I believe their bracket matrix average was five point three in terms of seeding. So a lot of people had them. More people had them as fives than they did as a six, and they ended up being a seven. So that's a, a big, big, big under seeding. Um, and it also led to a really unfortunate first round matchup because I think. Two of the more exciting teams in the tournament. One of them is going out in the first round, and then one of them is playing Texas in the second round, which is bad for both of them. Um, but then also, my last thing is my my only issue is that if they're going to use the net as the main tool for evaluating teams, team sixty six, which is Arizona State, and seventy and sixty seven in the net, who that one's Pitt, should not be in the tournament over teams number over team number forty and team number forty three, which is Oklahoma State. I really do think that they were too low on the Big 12 because I think that that conference, I, there are there are numbers to back this up. That conference might have had the best season 
of any conference across the board in my life. And for them to take a team as good as Oklahoma State and take them out of the tournament, I just don't. I just don't think that's right. Um, I, I don't really agree with that decision at all. Um, I'm okay with the Rutgers thing because it's just them saying that too many bad losses will take you out of the tournament. And the reality is that's consistent with their other uh, evaluations because that's the reason why Clemson was the third or the fourth team out, I believe. Uh, because Clemson had that loss to Louisville, which is about the worst loss you can pick up in any conference, in any major conference in the country, and had two, they had two losses in every quadrant, I believe, on their resume. Um, a quad, two quad fours, two quad threes, two quad twos, maybe even one extra one of those. Um, and then a few more quad one losses. So it, the, the, it was at least consistent when it comes to Rutgers and Clemson and having bad losses taking you out. But Arizona State also had a loss to Texas Southern, who was 14-20 and 20 on the season. Uh, don't be deceived by the fact that they made the tournament. They had an amazing run in their conference tournament, which is great for them. But don't count that game as a tournament game. I mean, it's not a game against a tournament team. Um, and if they use that as a criteria, that's an extreme caveat. Um, so, you know, I, I wasn't too happy with that. And I'm not even saying that just because I didn't... It's the, just because I had those two teams out, because I'm actually not mad that Nevada is in. But I do believe that they underseeded and undervalued the Mountain West for the second year in a row, yet they still decided to put Nevada in, and then they just threw Rutgers out while they were overrating the rest of the Big Ten, which I feel like they're not supposed to be evaluating on conference basis, so maybe that's evidence that they're doing that. But it feels like they overrated the Big Ten as a whole, and then just decided that Rutgers was their cutoff point where they were done with the Big Ten, and I don't really like that kind of an evaluation. So I have a little bit of gripe with that. That that was the one that was the one reason why I'm also not really complaining about that one. I'm more a, a little bit upset with the Oklahoma State one because Rutgers did have a lot of injuries and looked horrible after those injuries. Um, and then the other thing is you also consider Oklahoma State. I, I believe Chris Reynolds' reasoning, who's the committee chair for Oklahoma State, being out was that they had 18 quad one opportunities and only converted on 33% of them. But I will say that the whole point of the quad system is that quad one wins are hard to come by. They're hard to get the opportunities and they're hard to convert the opportunities when you have them. Um, I don't really think six and 12 in quad one is that is that bad for a team that ends up making the tournament. I mean, look, NC State made it and they were one in seven in quad one. So, I mean, there are teams that did far worse, didn't even pick up like any wins and NC State's wins were a lot lower. They were not quad one A games like Oklahoma State had. They were quad one B games. Um, so I'm a little bit upset with the Oklahoma State one just because I don't think that's very consistent. Um, but I'll stop talking about the bracket and let's start talking about the actual teams. Yeah, well, we'll stop talking about the overall bracket, but we'll start picking apart the bracket region by region. So let's start with your thoughts on the easiest region for the number one seed to advance. I do think that the South is 100% the easiest region to advance. Uh, Alabama has the easiest road by far of any one seed. The bottom of their region is strong with Missouri, Baylor, Arizona, and Creighton, I believe, all those teams are at least at the top of their seed lines in terms of, at least in the top two of their seed lines in terms of if you were to go rank every team seed line by seed line, how good is the team? I think Creighton is either the best six or the second best, only to Kentucky maybe would be ahead of them. I think Missouri's right up there with A&M, who's wildly underseeded for being the best seven seed. Um, frankly, I would throw A&M out of that conversation because they just shouldn't be a seven seed in the first place. Um, but Baylor, I think, is the best three seed. Um I think I'm not a hundred percent positive on that one, but they have to be up there at least. Um, and they, they played kind of bad at the end of the season, but I think overall they have the talent to be there. 
And Arizona is just a team that has a lot of tournament experience. They didn't lose much from last year other than Benedict Matherin, which that's a big loss, but they were able to replace it with a lot of talent. Courtney Ramey, a guy who had a pretty big uh, role in Texas's tournament run last year. Um, so I, I believe that's 100% the toughest region because they should be able to cruise to get to those teams. And guess what? They only have to play one of those teams because they're all in the bottom half of the region, which means that they're going to all take each other out before the Elite Eight. So they only have to play one of those teams. I think they're playing the worst four seed, and I think they're playing one of the easiest five seeds to play against. I don't think San Diego State is the worst five seed, but in terms of how they've been trending and how they play in general, I don't think they're one of the the toughest matchups you can get if you're a one playing a five seed. I think Duke is much tougher. I think Miami with their tournament experience is much tougher depending on their injury situations. Um, so I do think that their region is very, very easy for them to advance. All right. Well, I agree with you about the South's bottom half, but the issue is Alabama could lose in the second round if West Virginia gets past Maryland. So um, I think Houston, putting aside their injuries, I think it's the easiest region for the number one seed to advance. Um, I think it's got an easier, Houston has an easier path to the lead eight in the Midwest. Uh, but if Chalk holds, they run into Texas, which could be tough. But then again, all the twos are tough out. So putting aside Houston's injury issues, I actually think if you were a one seed, that's the region you'd want to be in is the Midwest. The only reason I would push back against that is because San Diego State and Virginia don't have any players anywhere remotely near the category, near the caliber of either Jalen Hood-Jafino or Trace Jackson-Davis on Indiana. That's just Indiana. They also don't have any players who are anywhere near Isaiah Wong, who's on Miami, or frankly, for that matter, Nigel Pack. I don't mean to disrespect players on Virginia, but I think there are four better players all across the two fours and fives in Houston's region that are way better that can just carry a team. And by the way, Isaiah Wong already did carry a team to the Elite Eight last year. Yeah, they got destroyed by Kansas, but this team across the board for Miami is much better. That's why they're a five seed. Um, and I also do, th I mean, I, I think if you were to go player by player, and I really do think you look at like the UConn runs, the Cinderella runs of the past, it does take at least having one of those star players. I don't think there's a single player in like that in Alabama's region, and they do have one of those players in Brandon Miller. There is not a single player in that region that comes anywhere close to matching up with those guys. All right, well, that's my opinion. Let's go to the most chaotic region, in your opinion. It's got to be the Midwest. Um, I think Texas is very strong, but they got a super tough draw with uh, the now-proclaimed booty ball team of Penn State, which is now my favorite nickname. Thank you, Brad Underwood, for that one. A very angry rant that led to a very great nickname. Um, and the most underseeded team in the tournament, which is Texas A&M. So, I mean, this is the matchup I was talking about earlier where neither of these teams should be playing each other. There are two matchups like that in the tournament. I'll talk about the other one later. Um, but Penn State and A&M shouldn't be playing each other in a 7-10 matchup. A&M needs to be a 6, maybe even a 5. I didn't have them there personally, but looking back on their resume, I actually could see why people wanted them to be there. Um, and then I think that Penn State is not... Penn State, on, on the course of the season, is a 10 seed, but... How they've played recently is not how a 10 seed plays. They have played like a 6 or a 7 seed recently, taken down many 6 and 7 seeds and 8 seeds throughout the tournament. Um, so that region is just crazy because I think any of those three teams are Sweet 16 good, honestly, at least. Uh, maybe even Elite 8 caliber, caliber maybe even Texas and A&M. I, I don't know about saying A&M is Final Four quality, but Texas definitely is. Um, I also think Xavier played extremely well at the end of the year. Um, you also have Houston and Miami and Indiana at the top. I talked about all the star caliber players that are there already, so I won't go more into that. But at the same time, while Xavier's played well, I think Kennesaw State is the team that's the 14th seed with the most likely chance to upset the three in the first round um, because they've dealt with 
players like Sule Boom, who are ball-dominant point guards, who are leading their teams and kind of... I wouldn't say Sule Boom is carrying his team as much as Darius McGee did at Liberty, because um, Darius McGee is like the third leading scorer in the country, and Liberty is not one of the top scoring teams in the country. But Kennesaw State dealt with that twice already to make their way into the conference, or to win their conference, and to get to the NCAA tournament. So I really don't think they're scared of high-scoring point guards because Darius McGee is a better scorer than anybody. He's actually a better scorer than anybody in the NCAA tournament because the only guy who averaged more points per game than him is Antoine Davis, who was close to setting the scoring record four points away, but didn't get there. And obviously he's not in the tournament because that team is nowhere near as good as any tournament quality teams. But because of that, I would have this region as the most likely to have a double-digit seed in the Sweet 16, mainly looking at Penn State there uh, as well. Uh, with somewhere in that bottom area, even the team that comes out of that play and could be really strong because Pitt is one of the most volatile teams in the country. I think that if they play a weak game against Mississippi State, but they're able to get past Mississippi State, they might just come out and play like the team that beat Northwestern by 30 on the road um, and just come out like that team and be able to beat a six seed and a three seed. Well, I think the most chaotic region is the East. I think they have the weakest one seed in Purdue and an eight seed Memphis that's on a roll. They've got a five-seed Duke that no one wants to play, and they've got six- and seven-seed teams in Kentucky and Michigan State that have legendary coaches and a history of making runs in the tournament. And I didn't even mention the two, two to four, two through four seeds. And I think the tens and the eleven, the ten, and the eleven, USC and Providence, they're used to competing with top teams in the country and can and really can hang with people and beat them. So I say the East is going to be the most chaotic region. Um, let's move on to the most wide-open region. It's going to be the East. Um, (laughs) The reason why, the distinction that I make between chaotic and wide open is that chaotic to me is upsets up and down the bracket throughout the tournament could be looking like a UMBC versus Kansas State uh, matchup to get to the Sweet 16, which that did happen a few years ago. Obviously, Kansas Kansas State has now turned around their program with Jerome Tang, so that doesn't seem like it's that outlandish. That sounds like a 116 matchup, but no. UMBC was the 16 that beat Virginia, and Kansas State was the 9 seed that got a free pass to the Sweet 16 because they played an 8 seed and a 16 seed. Uh, They played the route that the 1 seeds are supposed to take as a 9 seed. Um, But look, that region went crazy that many years ago, and I think that's the region that Loyola Chicago ended up making the Final Four out of, which, I mean, no surprise because they had a 9 seed in the Sweet 16 instead of a 1. But that's how I describe chaotic, and I believe that that's what could happen with the Penn State region, whereas I believe that wide open is how many teams could win the region. I don't think that Penn State, I don't think that A&M, I don't think that those teams are capable of winning that region, and I think that Houston and Texas provide a very solid top of the region. I do think that every team one through nine, I mean this legitimately, could win this region. FAU is the leader in the country in wins, they are the most underseeded team that's not named Texas A&M in this tournament. Memphis can beat anybody and plays FAU in the first round. They could easily beat Purdue because they already beat a better team than Purdue literally yesterday. Um, I also think that MSU has Izzo in one of the best backcourts in the country. You said it yourself about Izzo. Uh, Kentucky has Coach Cal. They're looking for revenge, and they still have Oscar Sheboy, who was supposed to come in and dominate the tournament last year. Duke, we've talked about enough already. I actually didn't talk about them as much as I thought I would, uh, but I think that team is Final Four good. I think actually, I think actually in my current like, in, in my current actual bracket, I think I actually do have them as a Final Four team um, because we'll talk about it later. But there's a five seed trend there. 
Um, Tennessee's a complete wild card, but they are anchored by arguably the best defense in the country. If UCLA is injured, then Tennessee does have the best defense in the country. Then you have Kansas State, who has an insanely talented duo with Marquise Noel, and people really forget that Keontae Johnson last season, uh, the SEC had Oscar Shibwe as the player of the year. Before Keontae Johnson had that heart attack on the court and had to sit out the rest of the season, he was the preseason player of the year in the SEC. He is one of the best players in the country, and he always has been. I mean, he's playing through a very, very serious medical condition, but it hasn't affected him on the court to date, and I don't think it will in the future. They have one of the best duos in terms of talented players in the country, and then you have Marquette, who is 14-1 since January 16th and undefeated since February 8th. And then, of course, I didn't even get to the one seed. You have Zach Eady and Purdue, which, I mean, maybe for the chaos um, part of it, that Purdue is probably the reason why this region could be described as very chaotic because they're either going to shoot the lights out and they're going to be the best team in the country, or they're going to shoot like a bunch of high schoolers and they're going to be one of the worst teams in the tournament and be out to Memphis or FAU in the second round. But that's the reason why it's wide open because I really do believe that Memphis could be a team that does what North Carolina did last season. I wouldn't really be that surprised. But I also wouldn't be surprised if FAU was able to do it. And FAU actually does have an underrated matchup with Vladislav Golden against Zach Eady, a big 7-1 guy. I don't think FAU would actually need to double the post. And I don't think that Zach Eady would have a field day against them. And that's something that Purdue has not faced all season long. So I really do think because the one seed has a very good chance of being out early and because they have so much talent from two through nine, and then great coaches and the teams in between. Even you can, by the way, put Rick Barnes in that in that conversation as well. I mean, they have a great team there, and then Duke is the most talented team in the country, period. Um, so that's the reason why that's the most wide, That that is the reason why that is the most wide open region. All right, well, I agree. It's the most chaotic and the most wide open. So let's move to the strongest region overall. I think it's the West. I think by far it's the West. Um, I believe I saw something that, the West has five top 10 Ken Palm teams or top 12 Ken Palm teams, which is, um, I guess the best way I can put it is that's just not supposed to happen at all. Uh, but in St. Mary's is the fifth one, by the way, if anybody was wondering. Um, I'm taking UConn and Gonzaga over any of the fours any day of the week. I don't care where it is. I will take either of those teams on a floor against any of their fellow seed line mates. Um, Despite the fact that I picked that I picked Baylor to beat Gonzaga earlier in the year, and despite the fact that Baylor did beat Gonzaga on a neutral floor, I do believe that right now Gonzaga is playing well enough that 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 would change. Um, I think that UConn is the best four seed. I think that they would be a three seed had they beaten Xavier either of the times they'd played them, and those games were close enough that that really honestly, I won't say it shouldn't define their season because the committee does have to go off of head-to-head results. If a team beat a team twice and they're right next to each other, then they have to be over that team. But UConn should be in Xavier's position as a three seed rather than Xavier being the three and UConn being the four. And then UCLA, if they're healthy, um, I'm taking them over all the other twos. And Kansas, if they're healthy, maybe with the exception of Houston, because I'm going to die on the hill that they're the best team in the country, if they're healthy, uh, is the best one in the country also. Um, And I also think that St. Mary's is flying under the radar as a five, but only because they play the best 12 seed there. Um, and a team that, I mean, I think I even have St. Mary's losing in the first round, but at the same time, I actually think that St. Mary's might be the best five seed. I think they're better than San Diego State for starters. Maybe they're, well, they're not better than Duke, actually, I will say that. Um, but I, I think you can make the argument they're also better than Miami. And then I think that when you throw in the seven seed that beat Purdue and swept Indiana this season, that being Northwestern, 
who plays the same style as both of the teams are going to play, Boise State and UCLA. And by the way, same thing on the flip side of that matchup for Boise State. Uh, and the sixth seed, TCU, who's been injured all season and has been a really great team when they have been not injured. I mean, last week, they went to the Big 12 tournament. They beat Kansas State, who's a three seed, by 13 on a neutral floor. So TCU, when they're healthy, is really, really good. Um, and then they have the second most talented eight seed with the biggest wild card of all time in Illinois, who has so much talent, but kind of no point guard. Um, so I believe that that's the strongest region by far. Uh, I agree with you, and you barely mentioned that uh, you talked about the 12 VCU, won their conference title. 10 seed Boise State is no slouch. Uh, the 11 seed could be either Arizona State or Nevada. You mentioned Nevada having a high net of a being the play in Arizona State's taking down Arizona. Uh, VCU we talked about, Iona with Rick Pitino. Um, and then the 14 seed, Grand Canyon, exciting team. They can score. I'm not putting any stock into Iona. I want to, I want to take a lot of people off of that market. I will tell you for a fact that um, Iona keeps getting this reputation that because Rick Pitino is their coach, they're going to win a tournament game. They still haven't won a tournament game yet, and okay. I think there's a reason for that. I'm just agreeing with you and saying there are other points you didn't even mention why that region's the toughest. And I also do think that Iona is the... Uh, that that UConn is the best team that Iona has actually played in any of the first round matchups and they already haven't won any of the other games. So, okay, well let's move on to some fancy uh, statistical things that uh, we talk about in recent years and see how it could play out this year. Um, a double digit seed has reached the sweet 16 every year since 2008 and two double digit seeds have reached the sweet 16 in nine of the last 12 tournaments. Four double digit seeds have reached the sweet 16 in each of the last two seasons. Last year was number 11 Michigan, number 11 Iowa State, number 10 Miami, and number 15 St. Peter's. And the prior year it was Oregon State, UCLA from the playing game, Oral Roberts, and Syracuse. So who could those teams be this year? Well, I think that one of the one of the common threads with all those teams, um, you look at UCLA's current roster makeup, that is the two-seed, and it really is the same, except for they also had Johnny Juzang back then. Um and I just look at those teams, and by the way, Oregon State had Jared Lucas and Wayne Alatiche, and by the way, Jared Lucas is on Nevada, which I would like to mention. He is now the leader of that team, who is now going to be a double-digit seed that has a chance to make the Sweet 16. Um, but there's a lot of talent on all of those teams. Iowa State had the makings of a very, very good team all year long that just never really put it together and had a very weak end of the season. Michigan was a preseason top-five team last year, I believe. Um, and Miami, at their core, had Isaiah Wong and Cam McGusty, who was probably the best duo in the tournament. And this year, Isaiah Wong was able to make it. Now, St. Peter's, on the other hand, that's just, I mean, St. Peter's was just an unbelievable upset story. But if you're looking at the teams who have that kind of talent, I like Jalen Pickett and Penn State to go that far. Um, they can absolutely booty ball their way past Texas. Uh, Providence has a bad first-round matchup with Kentucky, but if they can get past that, I don't see why they couldn't get past Kansas State as well because I think that Kansas State and Kentucky is a tie, is a, honestly a toss-up, so I think that a team that would be able to beat Kentucky also deserves to be called a toss-up in their matchup. Uh, VCU is the most talented of the 12, so I want to throw love their way, but beating UConn and St. Mary's is going to be really challenging, but I do want to say that they are out there, and they actually unlike a lot of the double-digit seeds, have tournament experience with Brandon Johns and also Zeb Jackson, kind of. Um, then you have Boise State, who could beat UCLA if they're too banged up, to be quite honest, and I, I really think they match up as almost a carbon copy of Northwestern, but on the other side of the country. 
Um, so I don't think that that, that matchup is going to be extremely close. I would like to throw that out there. Both Penn State and A&M and Northwestern, Boise State are probably going to be the two closest games of the first round, in my opinion. Uh, very different games. Penn State and A&M are probably going to score a lot more. But uh, although A&M is also a really good defensive team, but that game is going to be really slow paced and low scoring. Um, and then I think Charleston is an electric team that has the easiest second round matchup because Virginia is weak and might even lose to Furman. Although I do like San Diego State a little bit. So uh, I don't think that they have the easiest first round matchup, but they could make it to the second round. And I think they have a pretty easy matchup there. Well, I agree with you on the Providence and VCU fronts, and then I hinted at this. Uh, if Arizona State gets through that play-in game, um, they have the talent they've proven to knock off some top seeds, so I'll go with Arizona State. Um, similarly, on the theme of lower-seeded teams doing what, doing well, a five-seed or worse has reached the Final Four in each of the last nine tournaments and 11 of the last 12 tournaments. Who could those teams be this year? Well, I've already talked about this, but Duke, um, not even judging possibilities and you know, hypotheticals, and if this stat is true, then who are you going to be forced to pick? I actually just think it will happen. Um, could they also be this year's Iowa team that, you know, made it through maybe a little bit of an overrated conference? I don't think the ACC is overrated, actually. I think everybody knows that it's not a good conference. Um, 100% they could be, but I think they have a lot. Iowa, Iowa had Keegan Murray, and that was kind of their talent, that they had one big star that everybody proved, uh, or that everybody liked. Duke has five top five, I mean, Duke has Jeremy Roach, who led them on a deep tournament run last year, and also has three top five recruits in the country on their team. So they don't have just one guy who is that good. Um, and then I also think they are playing the most solid number 12 seed, so that could be leading them to be um, Iowa, the Iowa of this year. But they were just so good at the end of the season. Um, I also think Kentucky could emerge from that same region. And then my other pick would be Creighton, because every single stat, every single computer just thinks that this team is a marvelous top 10 team. And I really think that when Ryan Kalkbrenner is healthy, they have been a really good team. I mean, they, they finished the season about as hot as Marquette did. Um, just, they just had injuries early in the season that gave them a few early season losses. All right. Well, I agree with you, Duke and Creighton. Um, but I also threw in Texas A&M got a tough road against Texas, but uh, if they get past that, they, as you said, they're the, the most underseeded team in the tournament, probably. All right, let's move on to one of our favorite statistics. I actually don't have how many years it's been the case, but uh, usually the national champion, by the time they walk through the tournament and, and cut down the nets, they are in the Ken Palm top 20 in offense and defense. Last year, Kansas finished 6 in offense, 17 in defense. So who amongst that group wins the national title this year? Right now, the options are Houston, who's 11 in offense, 4th in defense, Alabama, 19th in offense, 3rd in defense, UConn, 6th in offense, 18th in defense, and Texas, 18th in offense and 11th in defense. There's some teams that are that are close that will let you pick from, but who do you think it's going to be? Well, I think something that, that's worth noting last year is that um, I actually said at the beginning of the tournament that Kansas was one of my picks, I think, and I said that because I said, if this team is going to win a title, they're going to have to play better on defense, and I think they were 23rd in defense entering the tournament, and as you see, they ended up 17th because they played well enough on defense. We knew their offense was title quality, but they needed to play a little bit better on defense at the end of the season, and that is exactly what they did, and that's why they won the title. Um, I think I like that same group of teams that's the near misses this year. I think if UCLA is going to win the title, they're going to have to play a little bit better offensively, and I'll get into more of this later. But my actual pick is Houston. Um, if Sasser is healthy, at least, and if they're not healthy, I'm going with Texas as they're going to be playing against an injured team so, or Indiana in that case, if Indiana was able to take down Houston. 
to get to the Final Four. So I just really think that's a safe pick. Uh, I really think that region is pretty strong at the very, very top of it. And uh, I do like that pick, uh, especially Texas, because I really do think they have a lot of balance. They have a lot of talent. They have the guards that are good enough to lead you uh, to a tournament. They can really shoot the ball. Tyree Sunders is one of the best three-point shooters in the country, and they also have Marcus Carr and Artario Morris uh, and Serge Barry Rice. They just have a really great team overall, and they have bigs that can guard. They can guard stretch fives. They can guard really big bigs. They can guard any different type of team, and I like that Texas has that versatility up and down their roster. I'm going with Alabama. Um, any other notable wild cards? Uh, I put in Marquette in this mix, and I also put in Arizona. Um, they're not really, they're not really even close. They're not, I mean, we have a near misses category here. They're not even going to make, they can't, they will be the team that would have to break the trend, uh, to actually win the national title. They're not good enough in either defense or offense, depending on who you're talking about to make it. And then UCLA, as I said, they're the number one defense in the country. Number two overall in Ken Palm. They're just 25th on offense. Uh, if they're going to play well enough to win a championship, they're going to play good enough to be a top 20 offense, and they're going to make it into that category by the end of the tournament, just like Kansas did last year, if they win the title. All right, well, my wild cards, I had Arizona Marquette, and then I'm going to throw in Duke there, who we've talked about a lot. Especially uh, me. Yeah, so let's, uh, final answer. Who are you picking to cut down the nets in Houston? Well, I have Houston if Sasser isn't hurt, and I have Alabama if he isn't. Um, something very interesting to talk about when it comes to the tournament is that Along with that Ken Palm qualification, there are a few other ones that I stumbled across recently that are very interesting. Um, 100% of national champions since 1993 have made their conference tournament semifinals. I'm not reading that list of teams because it's a big list of teams, um, but there are some notable contenders that aren't on that list, and there are definitely some that are. Uh, Memphis is one of the upset teams that I'm thinking of there. Uh, 100% of those teams have been in that... 100% of national champions, this is officially verified entering the tournament since 2002 have been both a top 40 Ken Palm offense and top 22 defense. There are only seven teams that fit that criteria. Houston, Creighton, Alabama, Texas, Yukon, Kansas, and UCLA. Um, and then finally, this one I just want to mention because it's odd. 100% of national champions since 2004, the year I was born, were ranked top 12 in the week six AP poll. A very random, arbitrary metric, but it works a very notable team that we've talked about a lot that isn't on that list is UCLA. A very notable team that snuck onto that list is Duke at number 12 right along the cutoff line. Those 12 teams are Purdue, Virginia, UConn, Alabama, Houston, Tennessee, Texas, Kansas, Arizona, Arkansas, Baylor, and Duke. Uh, and that wraps this edition of the 4th and 24 podcast. Please be sure to check out our next podcast, which will be on Monday, March 20th, where we will recap Patrick's weekend predictions, have our weekly look back at the NBA, and look back at the first week of NCAA tournament action. In the meantime, please be sure to check out Patrick's additional content, including his final NCAA tournament uh, bracket prediction. You can compare it to the committee selections and his picks for next weekend's games that will be posted as always on Thursday. All of that content on our website, 4thand24.com. That's the number four, T-H-A-N-D, the number 24.com. Thank you for listening.